Well, go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now that I've got your attention, 2 Samuel chapter 6. We often hear that motives are more important than actions. In fact, some claim that the only thing that really matters are your motives, not so much your behavior. Kind of an example of that. It's not a perfect example, but a number of weeks ago, I was at a Culver's down in uh, the Powell area. And um, there's this guy, whenever I go into that particular um, Culver's, there's always a guy working there. He's an older gentleman. I, I'm assuming he's probably close to retirement or maybe maybe retirement age. Maybe he's doing it in his retirement. Real nice guy. And every time I'm in there, he's always smiling. He's always gracious and he's always kind. And I see him. I recognize him in there all the time. So I make the assumption that he recognized you know, recognizes me, but I wasn't sure. So when I was in there a few weeks ago, um, I happened to notice he was like in this strange mood. I went up to him and he just went, hey, okay, so took my order, you know, and I always have little things that got to tweak, you know, no bun, that kind of stuff. And so each time I do that, he go, yeah, yep, yeah. So he's just in like this mood. And so I got, my, got all my stuff, you know, and I went and I sat down, and where I was sitting, I could actually see him, and I noticed that as others would come in, it was the same thing. And he just wasn't himself, and it just stood out as really kind of different or awkward. And as I'm sitting there, I thought, and I don't know what it was, but I felt almost somewhat, like, convicted, like I should go up and say something to him. But then kind of going, ah, nah, this is weird, he doesn't really know me, you know. But finally, after I got all that, I thought, I'm going to go say something to him, just see if he's okay, and ask, anything going on, you know. So I, have, I, I walked up to him and I looked at him and I said, hey, I said, I know you may, may or may not recognize me here, but um, I noticed you just don't look like yourself today. And he looked at me, got this weird look, and I said, you just, I don't know, it looks like maybe you're in a down mood, you're kind of in a funk or something. And, he, and all of a sudden he goes, oh, good grief. <sighs> Rolls his eyes, kind of does one of these things, you know, and I'm like, oh, I just offended this guy. I went, oh, oh wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. said, um, I'm sorry if I offended you, but I see you in here all the time. And I said, one of the things that has always stood out about you is you are gracious and kind and you've always got a smile on your face. I said, and today, I don't, I don't, I didn't see any of that. So I really, I didn't mean to offend you. I was, just to be real honest, a little bit concerned. Are you okay? He kind of looked at me, he goes, oh, he kind of got this half smile. He went, um, yeah, I, I, I actually am. But you know, I've just had a really rough week. Um, it's just been rough. And I said, anything, Serious? And he goes, no, just long. And he started going through. I worked 10 hours this day. I worked 12 hours this day. He goes, so I'm just exhausted. So I'm kind of, I just said, well, I said, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. I said, my, my motives were pure. I just, you're always so gracious and kind. I just wondered if maybe you were having a rough time. And he goes, yeah, well, thanks for asking. That was the end of it, you know. My point in sharing that example was my motives were actually good. I didn't mean to offend the guy, you know, and I had to actually clarify. I had to say, well, well wait a minute. Sometimes we just, you know, think that when our motives are right, our behavior is right. I didn't do anything wrong. It's not a sin issue. But you know how people don't always see the motives. They don't, don't always understand the motives. But we have a tendency in our culture and society to think that the only thing that matters sometimes is motives. And to be real frank, some might have responded when he rolled his eyes and went, oh my gosh, would have said, oh, I'm just trying to be nice. How dare, you know, and responded with that kind of antagonism, you know, and not thinking, wow, I might have offended him, even though my motives are right. I still maybe offended him the way that I asked the question. Motives are important, obviously, and the Bible has a lot to say about our motives. However, we can't say that motives are more important than our actions. We can't say that motives are the only thing that matters to God, because the Bible makes it pretty clear that that's not always the case either. 
In fact, the Bible places just as much emphasis on our behavior as it does on our motives. The passage we're going to look at today, I think, is a perfect example of this. It's the story of David when they're trying to move the Ark of the Covenant. It's from 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel chapter 6. I want you to go ahead and uh, turn your Bibles there with me. We're going to learn learn some things about motives here and how God responds to David and his good motives. There's some disturbing things in it as well that we'll wrestle through, but let's go ahead and break this down. We're going to see that there's two attempts here to move the Ark of the Covenant. And we're going to see different results in that. We're going to see God respond differently in each one of those as well. We're going to see David learn some things through the process. But the first one starts in verse 1. Let's read the first two verses of chapter 6. The first attempt starts here. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. So the text doesn't tell us exactly why David wants to move the ark here, but the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 13 gives us some clues. If you remember back in 1 Samuel, it was quite a while ago when we studied that, we learned that the Philistines had captured the ark of the covenant. The the, um, Israelites had done something foolish. They took the ark of the covenant out into the middle of battle with them, thinking that as long as the ark is with them, God would favor them. What happens is they're basically um, beaten by the Philistines. The Philistines capture the ark. And if you remember, the Philistines take the ark back to their home. And remember all the stuff that happens? You know, they get plagues and everything else. And finally they go, we don't want the ark anymore. So they're trying to get rid of the ark and send it back. And so they put it on two ox and they sort of let the ox go to, to go back. They put some offerings in it. Well, the, the whole thing doesn't, doesn't uh, turn out well for the Philistines when they do that. Well, as the ark was returned, it basically ends up back in this location that we find here in, cha- in chapter 6. And it stayed there for almost 100 years. It never made it back home. And in fact, it was put into the home of a particular individual named Abinadab. And it stayed there for, for basically a full century. There's only one mention of the ark for 100 years. That's it. Now, to think that the ark, as important as it was to God's people, to have no mention of it for over a hundred years gives the impression that they pretty much almost forgot about it. So it appears that when we come here that David sought to rectify this problem, not just the fact that the ark was sitting in some dude's home somewhere instead of in the tabernacle, but that it had been forgotten. But I want you to turn to 1 Chronicles chapter chapter 13. What's interesting about this is we have these stories of David paralleled in the book of First Chronicles. Not all of them, for instance, I discovered last night um, as I was working through the story of Bathsheba that the story of Bathsheba is not included in First Chronicles. It's left out. But so many other of the stories are. So First Chronicles is a parallel of a lot of these things. So you get extra details sometimes. And we do see that here. First Chronicles chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. Then David consulted with the captains and the thousands and the hundreds, even with every leader. David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if it is from the Lord our God, let us send everywhere to our kinsmen who remain in all the land of Israel, and to the priests and the Levites who are with them in their cities and pasture lands, that they may meet with us. And let us bring back the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul." that all the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of the people. So David's heart here is to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to its proper home, back into the tabernacle, 
partially because he realized it had been forgotten. But all the days of Saul, they never consulted it. Now, if you remember, the Ark of the Covenant is where the Ten Commandments were put, the Rod of Aaron. It's where the Lord sat. It was where his presence was, because on top of the Ark you had the the big mercy seat, and the Lord would sit there. And so it's rather striking that for a hundred years, and even all through the days of Saul, no thought was really given to the Ark of the Covenant. And so David decides he wants to rectify that. Another reason why he may want to bring this to um, back home was because in the location that it's at right now, it's only about five miles away from Philistine territory. And they were at battle um, with the Philistines on a regular basis. David may have wanted to protect it, that it might not fall back into the hands of the Philistines. So David's motives in moving the ark are pure. And the question I would have is, what's wrong with that? His motives are right. He wants to bring the ark back home. Now there's another thing here. If you look at verses 3 through 4, they make plans to transport it and start to do so. They place the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzziah and Ohio, or Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Now, the ark wasn't particularly light. It was a rectangular wooden chest that was overlaid with gold and measured almost four and a half feet by two and a half feet by two and a half feet. So basically, almost five feet long, almost three feet wide, and almost three feet tall. And that was just the ark itself. Then in addition to that, on top of that sat the mercy seat with two large cherubim and this seat in the middle. It's all made out of hammered gold. Estimates are that it weighed probably as much as 600 pounds, and that doesn't include the contents. Remember, the stone tablets were inside it. Aaron's rod was inside it. Some argue that, or estimate that those might have weighed another 50 pounds. So you have something here that probably weighed at least 650 pounds. It was heavy. So they loaded it up on a cart behind a couple of ox, which would make sense. They have to have something to pull this, right? And then they put two of Adab's sons in front of it to walk, or one in front and one behind to walk. They were the ones who were serving as priests. They weren't really priests, but they were serving as priests. So I ask, what better way to transport such a large, heavy object, right? Well, if that wasn't enough, they even chose to use a new cart. It says here that they put it on a new cart. They didn't want to risk putting it on an old cart, which might collapse under the weight. And the other thing with this is that this idea of putting it on a new cart might even suggest a sense of honor or respect. They thought they were doing right. We can't put God's car, you know, ark on an old cart. We've got to put it on a shiny new cart. We have to do that with proper respect and offer this. After all, who would dare to place such a holy object on an old cart that was used for farming purposes, filled with hay or dirt or straw or a donkey? Okay, so... We're doing the right thing. Not just a cart, but a new cart. Taking protection so it doesn't collapse and putting somebody in front of it and behind it and making sure we have oxen to pull it. So again, what could be wrong with that? Their motives appear to be good. Appear to be taking the right steps. The other thing is that it seemed good to celebrate too. They turned it into a large event. Look at verse 5. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres and harps and tambourines, cabinets and cymbals. Much as we might expect, moving the ark to Jerusalem was a pretty big deal. 
involved a huge celebration. It began with David collecting, it says, 30,000 men. Now that's a party. That is a lot of people, right? According to 1 Chronicles chapter 12, they invited all the inhabitants of Israel to come. So these 30,000 were just the guys that were arranging and getting ready to go and making up the parade, if you will. But he invited all Israel to come out and celebrate with them and walk with that ark as it traveled from where it was at back home. So basically, it's a parade with music, singing, and dancing. First Chronicles 13 says this, David and all Israel were dancing or were celebrating before God, and I love this line, with all of their might, even with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines, cymbals and trumpets. David was putting everything he had into this. You can imagine these guys just, we probably look at it and feel a little bit uncomfortable, you know, because we don't do the Pentecostal or charismatic things, right? And here David is, it says, dancing with all of his might, all of his energy. This was a large celebration, a large parade with all the pomp and circumstance and music. This wasn't some low-key event. It was a full-blown, massive celebration with tens of thousands of people, at least probably, depending on how many of Israel showed up, may have been over a million. So it was a celebration fitting such a momentous event, was it not? This was a big deal. And they turned it into a celebration because of that. So again, another, I'll ask the same question, what could possibly be wrong with that? Well, there was something wrong. And to be real honest, it had devastating consequences. Catches us off guard a little bit when we read chapter verses 6 through 7. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. It's a little shocking, isn't it? David was doing a good thing. They took some precautions to protect the ark. Made a huge celebration out of it which should honor and please the Lord, right? Isn't that a good thing? The problem all along was in the way that they chose to transport the ark. The ark was not merely some religious object. It was the holiest of all objects in Israel because it represented the presence of God. And therefore, God demanded that it be treated and transported a certain way. The law spelled out specific rules for transporting the ark. We find that in Numbers chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. But Numbers chapter 4 records exactly what was expected when it came to the ark. First, the only ones permitted to transport the ark and the holy items that were a part of it, including the tabernacle, were the descendants of a specific Levite, Kohath. So only his sons and his descendants were permitted to transport the ark. Prior to moving the items... All of them had to be completely covered. The descendants of Aaron were given that task, and they were the only ones permitted to touch or to even look at the ark. So they would go into the tabernacle before anybody else. They would completely cover all of the items before the sons of Kohath were even able to come in and transport the ark, and they couldn't even touch it to transport it. Because it was said that the only way they could transport it was to insert two poles into the four rings at the base 
and then lift it up and carry it with their hands or up on their shoulders. So there were very specific rules given for the treatment and the transportation of the ark. It was all spelled out in the law, and priests were supposed to know that. Anybody that understood the law and was responsible for the Ark of the Covenant should know that. So there were at least two problems here. The first was they put it on a cart, which was in many respects treating it like an unholy object. The second problem was that Uzzah touched it. There's no indication that he was a descendant of Aaron, the only ones allowed to touch it. There's no indication that he was a descendant of the Koholathites, the only ones allowed to transport it. And in fact, there's no indication that he was even a Levite who were responsible for the whole entire process. So again, they put it on a cart, and somebody touched it, which was completely forbidden. So it was a major violation of the law. In fact, you see that in verse 7, which gets at the heart of what the problem was. It says here that the reason the Lord struck down Uzzah was for his irreverence. So in that respect, it wasn't even so much the touching of the ark as it was the irreverence for the ark. The whole entire thing here, even though their motives were right, even though they, they David wanted to move the ark of the covenant back home, take it out of this, this dude's living room, basically, essentially, bring it back to the tabernacle, tabernacle where God said it was supposed to be placed into the Holy of Holies, even though it hadn't been consulted for the longest time, all of these things were good, right? All of these things were pure motives. Bringing it back and the celebration and doing all this good, if you want. But the whole entire process was filled with irreverence. Now, I find that interesting because even the way that they used a new cart and some other things seems to imply that they were being reverent. But you see, it wasn't reverence when it basically disagreed with what the law says was required. So their idea of what it meant to treat the ark with reverence wasn't at all reverent because it ran counter to what the Lord said would show reverence. He laid out to them the way that they were supposed to show reverence to this holy object. Now David's response is a bit mixed here. Look at verses 8 through 11. I'll go ahead and I'll read those. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and the place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him, which is where the tabernacle would be. But David, or actually a new tent, he's going to establish a new tent in the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Odeb-Eden, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. David's first response was anger. The text doesn't tell us if he was angry at the Lord himself, angry at the whole situation, angry at Uzzah for touching it. It just says that he was angry. It may have been a mix of all those things. His celebration was completely cut short by the death of Uzzah and the fact that they knew that it was the Lord that had taken his life. So for whatever reason, maybe it's a mix of things, maybe David was mad at God, maybe he was mad at Uzzah, maybe he was mad at the whole situation, maybe he's mad at himself. We don't know. But he was angry. 
The second response he has is fear, which is much more appropriate. It says, David was afraid of the Lord that day. Now, it would be easy for us to simply write that off as reverence or respect. I think this was fear. Exactly what it says. David was dismayed that he might never be able to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. He immediately stopped all of his plans. They parked it right there, the home of a Levite. They left it there. And then David wouldn't go back and even touch it for three or go back and see it for three months. I think he was afraid. I think he realized that what they had done was wrong. And they paid the consequence for it. What's our takeaway with this? You know, I wonder sometimes if we get a little bit lackadaisical. You know, I hear it often with Christians that, oh, God really knows my heart. Well, and that's important that he knows our heart. But it doesn't excuse behavior, where oftentimes it's used that way. In fact, I wonder if part of the reason why within the church, the um, our understanding of the scriptures, our knowledge of the scriptures, we have seen over the years, diminish significantly. Some of the research that Barna and others have done with just the everyday average Christians in churches, they don't have a clue what the word says, which means they don't know what God expects. And they simply go about living their lives based on how they personally think and feel with the idea that, well, I love the Lord and that's all that really should matter. My motives are pure. Or when we sin, when we hurt someone, oftentimes, how do we, what do we hear? Well, I didn't mean to hurt you. Or when we apologize, we say, oh, I'm sorry if my actions offended you. Not, I'm sorry for offending you, but I'm sorry if somehow you feel bad now because of my behavior and my actions. But I didn't mean to. And somehow we're supposed to be able to just write that off. Now, I'm not trying to say that motives are unimportant. Motives are important. But they, they can't be used to excuse bad behavior or sin or disrespect. And sometimes I wonder if we get a little bit too lackadaisical. Well, God knows my heart. He knows I really didn't intend to do it. I wonder if that's appropriate. I think we need to have a healthy fear, a healthy understanding and it's hard to do that if we don't understand what's written here. And again, I think that so many... I'm, I'll be real frank. One of the ways that I describe you folks to other people is I think we have a maturity level here at our church that is not often seen in a lot of other bigger churches. I think you guys have a better understanding of the Word than a lot of Christians do. And it makes a difference. There's a payoff. I, I've known many of you for years. And I've seen you grow and mature. And I, and I hope you've seen me grow and mature. And I think, you know, we're all, we're all sinners. We all, we all sin. You know, we're saints who sin, as I like to say. But so oftentimes, again, I think that so many Christians fall into this trap of just not really paying attention. No, the Lord says... I should do it this way, or expects this of me, and instead, sort of, uh, what really matters is what's in my heart. What really matters is I love the Lord. And that just doesn't fly. And we see that here. No matter what they did, God had spelled out, this is the way you treat the ark. And it didn't matter what their motives were. And God was angry. He was angry because of it. Well, there's a second attempt, and things go much better this time, because somebody finally pays attention to the rules. 
I'm going to read verses 12 through 19 as just a chunk, and then we're going to go back and look at it. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all, the, and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen, linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. Then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. We'll get to that in just a moment. Well, the first attempt was very similar in terms of excitement and celebration. There's a key difference. The key difference was this time they followed the law. Now, the details aren't quite as clear in uh, 2 Samuel here, but I want you to turn to 1 Chronicles again because there's additional details that really sort of give us an understanding of why this time things were different. 1 Chronicles chapter 15. I won't read all of them. I'm going to cite specific sections. 1 Chronicles 15. If you look at verses 1 and 2, it says, Now David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, No one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites. That would be the sons, the Kohlite sons. They were a subsect of the Levites. For the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister to him forever. So David starts the process this time. Nobody touched the ark! It's only the Levites, and again, we would know that that to be the Kohlites. But he goes a step further. Jump down into verses 13 and 14. David reminds them of what happened the last time. Verses 13 and 14. Because you did not carry it at the, at the first, the Lord our God made an outburst on us, for we did not seek him according to the ordinance. Nobody bothered that first time to look back at the law and say, well, wait a minute, there's laws for telling us how to transport this. Let's figure it out. They just completely said, well, we can do it. We'll do it the way we want. Verse 14, so the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, God of Israel. The priests were supposed to consecrate themselves before going into the temple, before they go into the Holy of Holies. This was a holy act, so therefore they did what the law commanded. They purified themselves, consecrated themselves before engaging in a sacred act. Look down at verse 15, it says, The sons of the Levites, these would be the Koholathites, carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles thereon, as Moses commanded according to the word of the Lord. So they followed the law this time. The entire event seems to have had a much more reverent air about it. They were more cautious in following the law, they consecrated themselves. It even says that they wore the priestly garments. David himself even put on an ephod. So they put on proper clothing. They even stopped, it says here, every six paces they would stop and sacrifice something to the Lord. It was a much more sacred and reverent event. I, I'm somebody where, you know, I, I struggle sometimes with... Um, you know, we don't live in a, in a, in a church culture where we have um, expectations like a liturgy, certain things that are done, you know, and God expects us to do this and that. 
and sometimes, you know, I, I, I've been in some churches that are very legalistic when it comes to clothes. You know, pastor must have on a suit and a tie, and he, we must come in with our, our best. And, you know, I, I have friends of mine that say, well, when you go to church, you should wear your best to give God your best, you know. And I'm of the opinion, I'm like, you know, um, I, don't, I don't think God really cares one way or another. But at the same token, there's an element to me that I, that I really don't like seeing people show up in beach clothes, unless they're at a beach service. You know, so when people come in and they're wearing flip flops and blue jeans, not blue jeans, but shorts, and they're wearing raggedy t-shirts, I kind of sit back and I think to myself, you know, you wouldn't show up for work at that. I hope you wouldn't. So my philosophy has always been, I'm going to dress the way that I would dress for my everyday work. You know, I'm expected to have a decent dress, and so, and so. Now that's just my personal conviction, but you know, there is this element of. Um, how we behave and how we dress, that sometimes reflects the reverence we have. If I show up for work really looking pretty crummy, that says a lot about how I value my job, my boss, the people that I work with, you know. And so I try to dress in a way that represents my job and my boss and my company when I go out and do things, right? And so I have a personal philosophy that says, I think it's nice for us to wear, you know, decent. Not that we have to dress up for church, but I'm just kind of like, eh, shows a certain amount of reverence. Respect for your peers and for the Lord and other things. But again, that's just a personal conviction. That's kind of what this idea here is with putting on the linen ephod. It didn't, doesn't demand it. The Bible doesn't say they had to wear the ephod to transport the ark. But it's something David does, likely out of respect, wearing the best, wearing the priestly garments because they're doing a priestly act. And so everything about this seems so much more reverent than the first one because they followed the rules this time. Didn't just rely on their motives. So there's a couple of things that make this different. The first one is that they're successful this time. They actually made it all the way to their destination. But there's something else, too. You can go back to 2 Samuel. There's something else that this passage tells us. It's down in verse 26. I didn't read that yet, but I think it's verse 26. I'm sorry, it's 1 Chronicles. But it's in 1 Chronicles, you don't have to turn back there. But it says, God was helping the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. What was missing that first time was God's involvement. In fact, God's only involvement, it appears, was to take the life of Uzzah. It was an act of judgment. Here it's an act of blessing. Because they did it the way that the Lord commanded them to do it, it says that he was with them. He was helping the Levites. Now, as we saw, we hadn't read it yet, but apparently not everybody was happy. Go back down into chapter 6 of 2 Samuel. Verse 16 says that when they got into the city there, Michael, this is David's first wife, the daughter of Saul, she looked out the window. She didn't even join the celebration, which is interesting. Everybody else is out celebrating and joining the celebration. She's still up in her house looking out the window at it which is rather strange. But it says that she despised David in her heart. Verse 17. So they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in his place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Further, he um, distributed to all the people to all the multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins to each one. 
And they all, all the people departed to his house, so basically it's a celebration of food. And then we find this, verse 20, but when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. She finally comes out of the house now, can't wait to talk to him, and said, how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants, maids, as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. In other words, he didn't have on his priestly garments instead, or his royal garments. He's wearing priestly garments instead. And she's not happy because he's not behaving or looking like a king at this point. Instead, he looks like a priest. So David said to Michael, he was before the Lord. That would explain the ephod too. He's in the presence of the Lord as he sees it, so he puts on the ephod. Who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will be more lightly esteemed than this and will be humble in my own eyes, but with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. In other words, he's saying, these maids down here, your servants, will think more highly of me than you do. Because they will recognize that David is honoring and worshiping the Lord. Michael was more interested in his kingly garments and everything else. Verse 23, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. It means one of two things. Either the Lord completely prevented her from having kids as a form of judgment, or David simply chose not to honor her in that way because of her behavior. So much the way that Uzzah paid a price for his irreverence, Michael also paid a price for her irreverence. What do we do with that? I think one of the takeaways from this is not everybody's always happy when we do things the way the Lord wants us to do it. And this came from within his own household. This time David's honoring the Lord with everything he does, including putting on the priestly garments, celebrating with all of his might before the Lord, and somebody's not happy about it because he didn't look like a king didn't live up to his expectations. That's oftentimes the way it is in the church. Do you ever have Christians who call you legalistic because you do what the Word says? Well, that's just a little bit legalistic when all you're doing is trying to obey the Word. I've had it. I've seen it. I've argued with other Christians saying, that's not legalism when you do what the Lord says to do. You're just honoring the Lord. Doing what He wants you to do. Yeah, but that just seems legalistic. Not everybody's going to always be happy. Let's kind of wrap this up. I hope that it doesn't sound like I'm trying to imply that motives aren't important. Because again, the Bible says an awful lot about motives. They do play a role in how we address sin. I would even go as far as to say that when you sin against against somebody, if your motives are deliberately to sin, that's pretty severe. If your motives are not to deliberately sin, it's probably less severe. But nonetheless, it can still be sin. So motives can play a role. But I think there's probably two primary takeaways that we can draw out of this text today. The first one is that proper motives do not always justify the means. Proper motives do not justify the means. Just because the end result, we think, honors the Lord, doesn't mean the process or the means honors Him. And that's important to Him. God is not just interested in the end result. He isn't only interested in the fact that we love him. In fact, Jesus said that we're supposed to teach and make disciples, or make disciples by teaching them what? To obey all that the Lord commands. If we weren't 
if he wasn't interested in what we do, he wouldn't command us to teach obedience. Taking the ark to the capital city was something that honored the Lord, clearly. A lack of reverence in using a cart to do it didn't. The motives did not justify the means. So I ask, are there things that we excuse about our own behavior or things that we do, even as churches, as the people of God, that we overlook simply because eh, the end result kind of we think honors the Lord or because we think our motives are right in doing it? I think about that when it comes specifically to um, how we do church. You know, with the creation of the um, seeker-sensitive movement back in the 80s and 90s, it was all about results. It really was. It was all about results. And the motives were right, reaching the world for Christ, bringing the Christians or bringing the unsaved people into church, making ourselves attractive for them. But as time has shown, the means were not always good. It has devastated the church because it not only did not bring in the unsaved, but it dumbed down the church. It placed theology and doctrine secondary to experience, to music, or how you feel and what you enjoy when you come in. The means did not, or the means were not justified by the motives. And I don't question the motives of most of those in the seeker sensitive movement. Their hearts, are, I think, were in the right place of wanting to honor the Lord by seeing people one to Christ. But the means were not always good. So motives did not justify the means. But think about your own life. Do you sometimes sort of write off your behavior because your heart was in the right place? Do you sometimes, maybe you've sinned, and instead of going to the Lord and just saying, I was just plain wrong, it's one of these, well, yeah, Lord, yeah, I probably need that. My heart was right, Lord. You, you understand that, but... Sometimes it's just best to say, you know, Lord, I sinned. It doesn't matter what was in my heart or why I did it. I did it. I sinned against you, and that's important. And we can do that because he tells us he still loves us. He tells us he's still willing to forgive us. He still tells us he'll cleanse us from the unrighteousness. So I think the first takeaway is that proper motives do not justify the means. I think the second takeaway is that proper motives do not trump obedience. It's related. When Saul felt like he was doing the right thing by offering sacrifices to the Lord, even though it broke the law, Samuel reminded him of one very specific truth. You remember that? Where Saul was supposed to wait for David or wait for Samuel to come and to make the sacrifices, and he gets a little bit edgy, and so he just decides to do it himself in violation of the law. And when Samuel confronts him, he's like, well, I did obey, you know. And Samuel looks at him and basically says, no, you didn't. And says this, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed, meaning to obey, than fat of rams. In other words, God cares about obedience. I would even go as far as to say, and I have to be careful with this, he might care more about obedience than motives if those are the only two options. Clearly, Azaz's honorable desire to protect the ark when it fell didn't trump his disregard and disrespect in it. 
Are there times when we ignore or write off our disobedience simply because we didn't intend to sin? Or somehow we think God overlooks it simply because our heart's in the right place or because we love him, because our motives are right? I think what we have to do, and you know, they always say there's middle ground in some respects. God cares about motives and he cares about obedience. The best of both worlds is when our motives and our obedience line up. If anything, our motives should motivate our obedience, not excuse our disobedience or irreverence. And I think this is a great picture here. And what I, what I love about it is David learned his lesson in this case. You know, when he got a second opportunity to transport the ark, he was very careful. He goes back and he specifically looks at the law to say, what does the law demand? What does the Lord expect? And when he does that, look at what happens. They're successful, but it even says the Lord is with them. I wonder sometimes if the reason why the American church is becoming so anemic in many respects, why we no longer have the impact we used to have, is even though our motives are right and our heart to serve the Lord is right, and even though we want to do everything we can to honor him and and see people saved, Sometimes I wonder if he's not with us because we're not doing it the way that he wants us to do it. We're ignoring that. And we're focused so much on our hearts and our motives and the big picture of accomplishing it that we stopped paying attention to how the Lord says we're supposed to do it. And so is he truly with us? Here we see a great example where there's a radical difference between the first attempt and the second, including the fact that when they did it, the way the Lord told him to do it. It says he was with them and he helped the Levites. Radically different end result. I'm going to go ahead and just wrap it up with that. And the final statement is this. In short, I think that God desires both proper motives, but also proper behavior. And those two should come together. And uh, that's really where our, where our challenge is this morning, I think. Let me go ahead and pray, and then we'll spend some time uh, singing and having our prayer requests. Father,